And usually we, uh, we focus our prayers locally and nationally and globally. Uh, of course, today uh, we're going to focus our prayers uh, particularly, we'll, we'll, we'll focus in those same areas, but particularly we'll focus in relation to the uh, coronavirus. So let's, uh, let's go before the throne together. Let's pray. Lord, you tell us in your word uh, that we can cast all our cares upon you. Peter tells us that, that we cast all our anxieties on you. And so, Lord, we we do that in prayer. Uh, Paul tells us to be anxious for nothing, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, to make our request known before you. And he tells us to do this with thanksgiving. And so we begin, Lord, by thanking you. Uh, that we can come into your throne room, that we can call you Father, that you are not distant from us, but you are close to us, and we can come into the throne room boldly because of Jesus, and because Jesus has opened the door for us. And we can, we can talk with you. We can, uh, we can seek your favor. God, we can entreat for you to have mercy uh, on our community and on our country and on our world. Lord, we know that um, these things are not a surprise to you. Lord, that things like natural disasters, uh, wars, diseases, these are part of the sin and misery uh, that that are a part of this life, that are a part of this created order. But they are not a surprise to you. They are not outside of the bounds of your control. Uh, And so it is right and good that we come before you this morning and ask for you to relent. God, we ask that you would bring an end to this plague. Lord, we pray that you would protect uh, those who have gotten sick, that you would bring healing to their bodies. More than that, Lord, we pray that You would bring healing to their souls. God, that You would use this, uh, this pestilence to show us, yes, our weakness, but to show us also Your strength. God, I pray that You would bring glory to Your name even in the midst of this pandemic. Lord, we pray for those um, who are most vulnerable. We pray for Your protection. God, we protect, pray that You would protect our gathering this morning. God, that, uh, that we ask that we would not get sick simply by being here. Um, but we trust You with the outcome of those things. Lord, we pray for wisdom for our leaders locally, uh, nationally, globally. Lord, we pray that You would help them to know best how to um, see us through this time. And Father, we pray for... Um, we pray for our doctors and nurses and health care providers. Lord, would you protect them and as they go about the good work uh, of bringing healing to sick bodies. Uh, Lord, would you, would you cover them in your protection uh, and would you use them mightily? Father, uh, as, we, um, as we don't know exactly what to do uh, in the days and weeks ahead, give us wisdom. Uh, to know how to follow your lead. And again, Lord, where, where sin is involved, Lord, we confess it, we bring it before you. Uh, we pray that, um, that you would make us useful. And that we would not be afraid, that we would remember that you number every hair on our heads. 
uh, and that if we are secure in Christ, there is nothing uh, that a bodily death can do to us. And so, Lord, would you help us to walk in the confidence of that reality. And God, if we don't have that confidence, if we are not confidently secure in Christ, Lord, I pray this very morning we would remedy that, that you would remedy that, that you would save those who are outside of you. Now that you would bring them into your family and give them an assurance of that salvation. But Lord, for those who are in Christ, that we would walk confidently, not fearfully. Um, that we would walk prudently. Uh, that we would help where we are able to help. That you would give us an eye to family members or neighbors who are in need. Maybe those who, uh, for whom it would be dangerous to go to the grocery store. May we be willing to make those trips for them. Help us to love in word and deed, Father. And now as we turn to your word, we ask for your divine guidance. And we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. We've been going through the Gospel of Luke, Jesus's. Jesus' life story as Luke records it. Uh, I, I thought about um, kind of making a last minute change, calling an audible and preaching a, a different sermon in light of uh, the coronavirus circumstances. Um, but I think there's a lot of uh, good stuff for us to glean uh, from this passage, even if it's not directly targeted. And so um, we're going to give our attention to God's Word, Luke 22. If you have a Bible, uh, we will start reading in verse 24. Uh, if you don't have a Bible, there's one there in the rack, and uh, we'd love for you to grab that. If you don't own a Bible, take that one home. Make it your own. Uh, I'm going to start reading on page 882, and we're actually going to look at two passages this morning. Luke, tw- uh, Luke 22, 24 through 34, and then verses 54 through 62. Just to give you a bit of context before I start reading... Uh, This is Thursday night of the last week of Jesus' life. He has just finished uh, the last supper with his friends uh, and has even told them that one of their number, one of the very people that he is sharing the table with, uh, will betray him to the authorities. So let's give our attention to God's Word. Now a dispute also arose among them as to which of them was to be regarded as the greatest. And he said to them, The kings of the Gentiles exercise lordship over them, and those in authority over them are called benefactors, but not so with you. Rather, let the greatest among you become as the youngest, and the leader as one who serves. For who is the greater, one who reclines at table or one who serves? Is it not the one who reclines at table? But I am among you as the one who serves. You are those who have stayed with me in my trials, and I assign to you, as my Father assigned to me, a kingdom, that you may eat and drink at my table in my kingdom and sit on thrones judging the twelve tribes of Israel. Simon, Simon. Behold, Satan demanded to have you. Now let me pause for a second. This is where uh, Southern English really comes in handy and why it's a superior mode of, uh, of English conversation. Because that's a plural you. 
And in Southern English, we have a plural you. Y'all. So I'm going to read verse 31 again correctly. Simon, Simon, behold, Satan demanded to have y'all, that he might sift y'all like wheat. But I have prayed for you, singular, that your faith may not fail. And when you have turned again, strengthen your brothers. Peter said to him, Lord, I'm ready to go with you both to prison and to death. Jesus said, I tell you, Peter, the rooster will not crow this day until you deny me three times, until you deny three times that you know me. And now let's fast forward a few hours to the moment when Jesus is arrested. We pick it up in verse 54. Then they seized him and led him away, bringing him into the high priest's house. And Peter was following at a distance. And when they had kindled a fire in the middle of the courtyard and sat down together, Peter sat down among them. Then a servant girl, seeing him as he sat in the light and looking closely at him, said, This man also was with him. But he denied it, saying, Woman, I don't know him. And a little later, someone else saw him and said, You also are one of them. But Peter said, Man, I am not. And after an interval of about an hour, still another insisted, saying, Certainly this man also was with him, for he too is a Galilean. But Peter said, Man, I don't know what you're talking about. And immediately, while he was still speaking, the rooster crowed. And the Lord turned and looked at Peter. And Peter remembered the saying of the Lord, how he had said to him, Before the rooster crows today, you will deny me three times. And he went out and wept bitterly. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of our God stands forever. Let's ask for his help in understanding and applying his word. Lord, it would be easy to be judgmental of Peter. Surely he would have, we would have done better. So Lord, would you expose us? Would you expose our frailty? And would you reveal to us the light of your goodness in this word? We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, one of the, the reasons that I believe the Bible is true, historically, factually true, and not a myth, is because the people in it, the characters in it, act like real people. They are not these legendary heroes uh, that we are meant to emulate or imitate. Um, If you compare the Bible with other religious writings, for instance, the Book of Mormon uh, or the Quran, you'll notice a difference. You'll notice that the, the characters in the Book of Mormon are these kind of super righteous people uh, whose deeds are unassailably good, that, there's, uh, that they're legitimately good people who always do the right thing. And when you compare that to the people in the Bible, if you're really looking, if you're really reading, you'll notice that the people in the Bible are not like that. 
In fact, if you, if you allow the Bible to read you, you'll notice that the people in the Bible are a lot like you. Right? Um, some, uh, some have said that, um, that the New Testament was written as a, as a propaganda piece. Uh, that yes, Jesus was a historical figure. Uh, he was probably a good religious leader and he taught good things. But, but we can't quite trust what the New Testament says about him because the, the writers of the New Testament were trying to get people to, to follow, uh, to join their movement. And so they needed to embellish the story a little bit. They needed to add some things to Jesus. Things like miracles, like the, the virgin birth or the resurrection. Those, those are really embellishments. That didn't really happen because these early church leaders wanted people to, to follow them, to join their movement. And so let's, let's look at that for just a minute. Let's, let's talk about that argument. If, if you wanted people to follow your movement... If you wanted people to join in your cause, what would you write about yourself? How, how would you tell your own story? Right? What sort of things would you want to be published about you? Because I can almost guarantee it wouldn't be the things that the disciples publish about themselves uh, in the Jesus story. Right? Uh, time and again, the word that I come away with in reading this is... Moron. Right? Really? Those are the sorts of responses, right? When, uh, so, so let's think about this. Um, Jesus has just told His friends, right? They've just shared their last dinner together. Jesus told them that this will be uh, His last dinner with them. He's told them that one of their number will betray Him to the authorities. And their response is to start arguing about who's the greatest. Right, and this and this was not a new conversation. It's one that they had been having already. Right, and just to kind of help help you understand, uh, they assumed that Jesus was going to be taking the throne, that a new kingdom era was coming. And now that part of that was right. Their assumption of what it would look like is wrong. But so so they're like, all right, listen, if we can get close to Jesus, you know, when he assumes when he assumes this new kingdom, this new throne, right, we're all going to get places in the cabinet. You know, like we're going to get places of honor. I get to, you know, I get to be vice president. I get to be secretary of state. I get to be chief of staff. You know, that's, that's what they're arguing about. Who's going to be the greatest? In fact, not long before this moment, Matthew tells us that James and John, two of Jesus' closest friends, actually had their mom come up to Jesus and ask for special favors. Is that what you would want recorded about yourself? If you wanted people to join your movement? Oh, look, it's the Mama's Boy movement. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Sign me up with those guys. Right? Uh, and, then, and then you have Peter. Uh, in Matthew's telling of this conversation, of this, of this event, uh, when Jesus tells the disciples that they're all going to fall away, Peter says, Not me. He says, Lord, even if they all fall away, I won't fall away. And Jesus is a lot more gracious. Of course, He's infinitely more gracious than I am. 
uh, that that would have been a forehead smack moment, right? Like if it, if I were Jesus, which thankfully I'm not, I'd have been like, bam, right? But Jesus looks at Peter and he says, actually, no. No, you're going to fail more spectacularly than all your brothers. I'm going to give you three opportunities. Three opportunities to own me. And all three times, you're going to say, not me. I don't know him. I wasn't with him. Three times, Peter, you'll get a chance. And for three times, you will deny me. Are those the kind of stories you would tell about yourself if you wanted people to follow you? Of course not. But they are the sort of stories you tell if you're telling the truth. They are the sort of stories you tell if you know you're a failure and you've been set free from the opinions of other people. They are the sort of stories you tell if you're pointing to someone greater than yourself. And that's why the Bible is true. It's why I find it to be true. Not only true, but also comforting. Because it doesn't give me fables. It doesn't give me heroes to imitate. Instead, it talks of people like Peter. Colossal failures who are broken and redeemed by grace. And so as we trace the downward arc of Peter this morning, I want you to see three things. First, that true greatness. And that's, and that's what the disciples are arguing about. Who's going to be great? Which one of us is great? And what Jesus tells them is, first, true greatness is measured by lowliness. True greatness. Greatness as God sees it is not measured by a high status, but by lowliness, by humility. Second, true power is measured by service to others. Not not in influence, how you can get other people to do your will, but rather serving other people. And then finally, that true strength comes from leaning on Jesus. That's what we learn as we trace Peter's downward arc. Uh, as one pastor says, and we've said it before here, that in, that in Christianity, in order to go up, you must first go down. Uh, the way up of the gospel is the way down. You must first go down before you can go up. True greatness is measured by lowliness. This is a huge theme of Jesus' life. Uh, Jesus often says that those who are last will be first. Those who strive to be first will be last. So I want you to think back to your elementary school days when it was time to go out to recess and your teacher had uh, had you line up at the door. Where did you want to be? The front of the line. Right? In fact, usually the teacher would have to restrain the classroom. Because left to ourselves, everybody bum rush, you know, for the for the first position. Even even here on Wednesday nights, it's 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 kind of funny. Um, so we do uh, we do a Bible lesson for boys and then for girls, uh, and then after they're done with their Bible lesson, they get to go outside and play. Right? So. Um, 
Some, some cheeky little kids even ask, Hey, are we done yet? Uh, I try to keep it short. But as I'm, as I'm closing in prayer, um, now they know, they know to remain seated on the floor until I tell them to line up at the door. But I know as I am closing the lesson out in, play, in prayer that those little booties are scooting towards the back, right? They're just they're working their way slowly back towards the door so that they can be the first in line to go outside. We love to be first. We're always striving to be first. And kids, let me tell you something. Grown-ups are no different. They are just like you. They've just figured out... They're just trying to mask it better. Right? Um... Our first seeking uh, usually is a lot more uh, is a lot more vile than the first seeking of our children, and we usually deceive ourselves and try to mask it. Uh, so, so much like little children, we love to be first in line, and yet Jesus constantly says, "Look, everybody who wants to be first is going to be last in the kingdom, and everybody who comes in last will be first. Jesus flips things on their heads. He always inverts the normal order. He flips that desire on its head. As he listens to his disciples argue about who's going to be the greatest, he says, look guys, that's how the the kings of this world operate. That's how other kingdoms operate, right? Everybody's trying to grab authority and prestige and power. They want to be known as great. But not, not you. That's not how God's kingdom works. That's not how my kingdom works. Instead of trying to be first, I want you to be last. Instead of trying to be the greater, I want you to be the younger, right? Uh, and of course, Jesus there using, in birth order, in Jesus' day, the, um, the firstborn got the lion's share. Um, so Jesus is saying, I want you to act... I want you to act like the youngest child, right? The one who can expect nothing. That's, that's how I want you to behave. I don't want you to jockey for position at the front. I want you to settle for last, to seek to be last. God's kingdom values are different. John the Baptist, uh, who came before Jesus, prepared the way for Jesus... In John chapter 3, Jesus has come on the scene and, and more people are starting to follow Jesus. And so John's disciples, his followers, get kind of worried. They come to John and they say, Hey, hey, John, Jesus is getting more likes than, uh, than, than you. Jesus is getting, getting more followers than you. More people are going after Him. You know what John says? He must increase, I must decrease. My sole purpose in life is to point people to Jesus. And now that that's happened, I can fade into the background. Wouldn't that be the attitude for us to have? I want you to to try this verse on uh, for a week. It would be a good verse to try on for your whole life, but that's, you know, that's asking a whole lot. So let's just try this for a week. Romans 12.10 Paul says... Outdo one another in showing honor. Outdo one another. Uh, that verb means to lead the way. Outdo one another in showing honor. So instead of jostling to be first, what if we jostled to be last? 
What if, what if we began the day asking God, Lord, who can I honor? Who can I honor today? Who can I honor? Who can I love? That goes against the grain of our natural tendencies, right? Our, our tendency is to complain about others. But Paul says, outdo one another in showing honor. So if my natural tendency is to gain influence and power, to go first, then how do I flip that on its head? Let's look at the next step down. That true power is measured by service to others. Again, that's countercultural. Now we, we measure power and influence in what we can accomplish, uh, in what we can get other people to do. Right? When we're looking uh, for models of success, we don't, we don't look to the guy, uh, we don't look to the assembly line worker. We look to the CEO. That's the model of success. Right? Jesus says that earthly rulers want to be called benefactor, a helper of the people. And even tyrants were called that in Jesus' day. But uh, Jesus, Jesus says, flip, it that, flip that over. Right? And so, so like we, we, have, we have this innate caste system. You know, what, you know what I mean by that? India, if you're familiar with India, India has a caste system. And what that means is if you are born into a certain ethnicity, into a certain ethnic group, this is your slot for life. This is your role in society. And there, and there are gradations, right? Some people are born to the highest caste. There's, there's four main ones and there's about umpteen thousand minor ones. And then if you don't fit in the caste system, then you're what's called a Dalit. You're an outcast. Uh, you're the lowest of the low. Well, we all have an innate caste system, don't we? We all have an idea in our hearts of, of who belongs at the top, who belongs at the bottom, and then even who doesn't belong at all. And Jesus says, turn that on its head. Turn that on its head. In another place, Jesus says, The Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give His life as a ransom for many. Jesus flips it over. He says, instead of seeking to be a master over others, seek to be the servant. And it's interesting, He had just demonstrated this for them. Uh, John, uh, John's Gospel tells us more about this in John 13. Uh, when they gather for the for this Passover meal, whenever you whenever you gather for a, a formal meal in the first century, there would usually be a servant who would come around and he would wash everyone's feet, right? Because in the ancient world, before socks and shoes and clean automobiles, you walked, and when you walked, you were you walked on dusty, dirty roads with animal waste. All right. So if you think feet are nasty now, you can imagine what you would think about feet in the first century. And so it fell to the lowest of the, the, the household servants. It fell to the lowest of slaves to wash feet. And so as they uh, lay down at the table to begin their meal, 
There would have been this expectation that a servant would have come out with a, a towel wrapped around his waist and a wash basin, and he would have come behind each one of them, and he would have cleaned their feet before they ate. But instead, at this meal, Jesus is the one who disrobes and wraps the towel around his waist and begins going around from foot to foot, washing that dirt and grime and animal waste off. Now, I want you to let that picture sink in. That the Creator of feet and dirt and, yes, animal waste is the one who is washing animal waste and dirt off of feet. Jesus says, I am among you as the one who serves. That is the character of our King. He takes the lowly position. True power is measured in service to others. How? So if if true greatness is measured in lowliness, if true power is measured in service, then how do I become that sort of humble, self-sacrificing person? How do we become that person? Is it just is it enough to say, "Hey, be this, don't be that?" You know, there's actually a way to serve other people that's actually self-gratifying. Right? That you, that, that you can serve others in a way that you're kind of giving yourself a pat on the back or you're doing it for a warm, fuzzy feeling. And that's not Christianity. That's, that's nice, it's just not Christianity. So how do I become a truly humble person who gives of himself for others? Well, let's look at the last station on this downward trek. True strength comes from leaning on Jesus. This is where we have a lot to learn from Peter. You may remember the, the bracelet, what would Jesus do? It's probably better for us to ask, what would Peter do? Because his story looks a whole lot more like ours. That downward road from pride to humility is a, is a painful one, is it not? Pride is the opposite of grace. Pride is the opposite of love. Pride blinds you to just how shaky your position is. Jesus tells Peter, Peter, Satan wanted to have you all... uh, he, He wanted to sift you like wheat. He wanted to tear you apart, is how we would put that. Satan has asked to pick you all apart. But he won't because I've prayed for you. And Peter's response to that is, Not me. You may have had to pray that for the others, Jesus, but not for me. I'm, I'm in good shape. Thank you. Thank you for your prayers, but I won't need them. Pride blinds us to how shaky our position is. Pride can cause you to be right next to Jesus and totally miss Him. That's where Peter is. You know, his name means rock. And it sure is easy to be a rock when you're surrounded by friends and behind closed doors. Right? But then all of a sudden, Peter finds himself in this courtyard of the high priest's house. And, and several feet away, his master and his friend, Jesus, the one he pledged to stand beside at all cost, is being interrogated 
and falsely accused and cursed and slapped. And now, bold Peter warms himself by a fire and nervously observes from a distance. And then, this rock of a man, Peter, is outed by a lowly servant girl who takes a look at him and says, Hey, you were with him. And what does Peter say? I don't know him. And then a little while later, another bystander calls him out. And Peter again says, I'm not with him. And then as the night wears on, the pressure increases. His clothes or his accent give him away as being from Galilee where Jesus is from. And so they say, oh, you, you, you have to know Jesus. And Peter says, I don't know what you're talking about. And no sooner are the words out of his mouth than the rooster crows. And it's at this moment, as the crowd rages around him, that Jesus looks over at Peter. And Peter catches his eye. And it all comes rushing back. And he remembers what Jesus had said. And this rock, who had boasted of his intense devotion to Jesus, realizes that his strength was all a sham. That all that he boasted of was nothing. And he flees the scene, weeping bitterly. Now, that's a really painful moment. But I also want you to see that it's a really good moment. It's a really necessary moment. That Jesus actually brings that moment into Peter's life so that Peter will be broken and made new and fit for service to Jesus. Jesus had even told him just a few hours before, Jesus had even told him this was going to happen. And Peter has to be broken of his own strength before he will really lean on Jesus. And so look back at verse 31. Jesus tells all of his disciples that uh, what's about to happen is a lot more than just uh, human enemies. That there's actually supernatural evil at work. And Jesus tells them that Satan wants to pick you apart. And it's important to notice, just as a side note... That Satan has to get permission. Uh, that, that, that Satan has to ask God's permission. He is not free to do as he wills, but he has to ask for God's permission. Evil is on a leash. Uh, but Jesus says, I've prayed for you, Peter, that your faith wouldn't fail. Jesus doesn't say, Peter, you better, better buckle up. You better dig deep. This is going to be a tough night. You're going to need all those reserves of personal strength. No, Jesus says, Peter, the only thing between you and absolute failure is me. The only reason you're not going to completely abandon the faith tonight is because I have prayed for you. And then he says this, After you turn again, Strengthen your brothers. See, Jesus even gives Peter hope. Peter, you're going to falter. I'm praying for you. And after, after you have faltered and you turn, 
Then I want you to strengthen your brothers. I want you to be useful. I want you to be useful for my service. But what I want you to see is that Peter has to be broken in order to be remade by Jesus. And so do I, and so do you. That's the way of the gospel. We will not come in on our own strength. We will not do good on our own strength. We must be broken and remade by grace. Did you notice the moment that changed everything for Peter? Luke's the only one who records it. It's the moment when, Luke, when Jesus turns and looks at him. What do you think was in those eyes? What do you think was in that look as Jesus stared at Peter? Listen to this quote from J.C. Ryle. It's long, but it's good. Surrounded by bloodthirsty and insulting enemies in the full anticipation of horrible outrages an unjust trial and a painful death, the Lord Jesus yet found time to think kindly of His poor, erring disciple. Even then, He would have Peter know that He did not forget him. Sorrowfully, no doubt, but not angrily, He turned and looked straight at Peter. There was a deep meaning in that look. It was a sermon which Peter never forgot. The love of Christ toward His people is a deep well which has no bottom. Let us never measure it by comparison with any kind of love of man or woman. It exceeds all other loves as far as the sun exceeds the candlelight. There is about it a mine of compassion and patience and readiness to forgive sin, of whose riches we have but a faint conception. Let us not be afraid to trust that love when we first feel our sins. Let us never be afraid to go on trusting that love after we have once believed. No man or woman need despair, however far he or she may have fallen, if he will only repent and turn to Christ. If the heart of Jesus was so gracious when He was a prisoner in the judgment hall, we surely need not think that it is less gracious when He sits in glory at the right hand of God. That look melted Peter. I wonder if the look of Jesus has melted you this morning. I pray that you would come to Him and that you would believe and be saved. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, until we truly see You, and until we are truly seen by You, we won't be broken and made new and ready to serve. And so, Lord, I pray the prayer of the old hymn, Jesus, cast a look on me. Give me sweet simplicity. Make me poor and keep me low seeking only Thee to know. All that feeds my busy pride, cast it evermore aside. Bid my will to Thine submit. 
Lay me humbly at Thy feet. Make me like a little child of my strength and wisdom spoiled. Seeing only in Thy light, walking only in Thy might. In this posture let me live and Hosanna's daily give. In this temper let me die and Hosanna's ever cry. We make this prayer in the name of our humble servant King Jesus. Amen. We're going to stand and sing, but this morning uh, in light uh, of the, the virus and to limit possible infection, we're not going to pass offering plates. Instead, uh, if you desire to worship the Lord through the giving of your gifts, our deacons will be at the back uh, on, on your way out of the worship service. So let's stand and let's respond to God's goodness.